0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and on this show, I'll be talking to a fund manager about the crash in Chinese shares and why he decided to sell 99% of his Chinese holdings earlier this year. I'll also be looking at how the mid-cap FTSE 250 index of UK companies is trading at a new record high. And Laura Souter joins me today, making her long-awaited return to the podcast.
0: Thanks a lot. It's great to be back. So today I'm going to be looking at the controversial subject of junior bankers being forced to work very long hours and very hard for quite big pay packets. And I'm also going to explain how there's a lot of cash hanging around down the back of people's sofas and in their piggy banks.
1: And I'll be talking to Stuart Widderson from Odyssean Investment Trust about a fascinating company in the defence sector, which is doing something very smart that a lot of people haven't cottoned on to. And Jenny Owen is also here to talk about film related memorabilia that's worth a lot of money.
2: Yep, I've got some really good news if you've got some Ghostbusters
0: or Star Trek stuff at home. I think that counts me out. But first, let's start off with our regular look at what's happening in the market. So, Dan, what's been going on?
1: Well, the FTSE 250 has hit a new record high. It's been quite a year for this index of mid-cap stocks. It's risen by nearly 14% since the start of January. And that's way better than the FTSE 100, which is up by 8.5% year to date. Now, of course, so helping to drive the FTSE 250 has been this wave of takeovers, like Meggitt, Morrison's, UGG Healthcare, St Modwin. You know, these are some of the names in the index that have received bids. And you know, I just think the FTSE 250 is attractive to investors because it contains you know sort of established businesses that are generally profitable. You know, it's probably generating lots of cash, but they've, you know, importantly, they've still got plenty of room to grow. Course that earnings growth is what helps to drive share price gains. I think if you if you sort of look back historically, the FTSE two fifty outperformed the FTSE one hundred on a you know sort of 10-20 year basis. Of course, there's no guarantee this will continue in the future, but I think it's really interesting if you do some do some of the math I mean, if you include dividends but exclude charges, a FTSE two fifty tracker fund would have returned more than three times as much. Over the past twenty years, as a FTSE 100 tracker, that'd be 548% versus 166%. Now, I think you know, there's a, there's a really you know, clear evidence here that you know if you take a patient view, um, perhaps that sort of mid-cap range of stocks is you know it, it's certainly very interesting from an investor's perspective if you're looking for opportunities.
0: So, That's a pretty it, massive difference, isn't
1: it? Very, very big difference. Of course, this is over a long time, but you know, there could be periods where the FTSE 100 will do much better. So, I think two FT 250 250 companies that reported earnings this week include Gregg's and Domino's Pizza, and their share prices reacted in completely different ways. So, shares in Gregg's slipped a bit despite reporting some decent news. It swung back to profit during the first half of the year as sales rebounded to pre pandemic levels. But, you know, it's doing very well, apart from, you know, some of its Shops in sort of the high streets, obviously missing out from all these people being in their offices. You know, potentially that might change as you know the more people go back to work rather than working from home. Um, but actually, you know, shops where you've got to go in your car, such as motorway service stations and stuff, they're doing very well. I mean, I don't know what's like you, Laura. But you, have you been you know in your time off? Were you loading up on, um, you know, going to places and then popping into. Um, places like Gregg's to get food on the go or have you sort of been completely off that you know during sort of the lockdown periods
0: yeah I feel like I haven't been into a Gregg's for ages that's clearly what I should have spent my maternity doing—just going <laughs> between bricks.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, so I mean, they're doing. They, you, know, you can't fault them really. They are, you know, all things considered, they are being doing very well. You know, and so too is Domino's Pizza. Now, its shares hit a new all-time high after it reported a big jump in first-half profit. Now, I, I think that puts to bed any fears that post-lockdown trading would be impacted as consumers took the vantage that they actually get out of their house and, and go out and eat stuff so i just think that you know if you look at these stocks together greggs has been the 17th best performing FTSE 250 stock this year up 53 percent. so you might argue that a lot of the good news about trading has already been priced in by the market Vesta's sort of got the idea that um you know greggs was this sort of very strong brand attracting people uh, particularly as they were allowed out of their house again but you know Domino's is still up 35%, but uh, year to date. But I think actually his latest results were a bit of surprise. I think people were thinking that there would be this big drop off in demand. You know, you know if you've got the option of staying in, uh, ordering a takeaway, or now actually being allowed out to go to restaurant and pub, that people do the latter. But, you know, it's it's done very well. And I think, you know, it's testament again to incredibly str- a business with an incredibly strong brand that's just um, found the right formula to to keep growing those earnings.
0: And I hear that Greg's is delving further into the vegan food market as well as a kind of new revenue stream.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the you know go back to the start of twenty nineteen, the launch of the vegan sausage roll. We are all talking about it. Got lots of people into its shops who perhaps wouldn't normally go there. And now it's got this sausage cheese bean thing, <laughs> which, which um you know, just see if that does it again. I mean, it, it's 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 launching it this week, um, and, and no doubt there'll be lots of chatter on social media, and um, you know, we'll perhaps see lots of people talking about it again. But you know, maybe maybe it's just not going to be you know as big a hit as the vegan sausage roll. I think that was you know completely um took everyone by surprise is that you are you a a vegan fan Laura of all this sort of stuff
0: um no but I, I was pleasantly surprised when I tried it and I wouldn't I think that's probably partly why it did so well is because it appeals to that market but also lots of other people were willing to try it and then quite surprised when they tasted it and would stick with it and so I was listening to last week's show um, and you were talking about um, lots of issues with kind of regulation hurting shares in Chinese companies. So are there any updates on that? Have there been any more moves that we've seen?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, last week I was sort of making the point that I thought it was going to be uh, an issue that was just going to grow and grow and grow and like it would you know, completely sort of become this big talking point. I wasn't expecting it to happen in a matter of days. But yeah, we, we've had Tencent, which is one of these big Chinese sort of tech gaming companies, had really, really sort of bad day on, on markets on the 3rd of August. And at one point, its share price was down nearly 11% in the day. And what's happening here is that, you know, the Chinese state media is sort of giving it you know, a, a lot of sort of criticism and um, so basically saying it's it's not quite doing the right thing in terms of being responsible with the gaming sector. So it's responded by announcing new restrictions on how long children can actually be playing its online games during a day, um, you know, and, and sort of taking a bit more um, sort of steps to ensure protection for minors and you know and also just being a bit more of a responsible citizen and you you get the feeling this is coming from the pressure from from the government it's you know essentially in recent weeks we've seen lots of chinese companies um their share prices fall the regulators in china just really clamping down and saying certain things like you know in the world of education you know perhaps you shouldn't be allowed to make a profit um and so on I i just think that you know the risks around investing in chinese stocks and related funds are getting a lot bigger so you know as a result i thought it would be quite interesting if we got someone on the show to you know who's got a lot to say about the subject so simon edelston from investment trust midwind international he invests in stocks around the world and has in the past bought some of these Chinese names. But he's actually become more cautious and you know he actually managed to avoid getting caught up in the current China sell off. So, um, Simon, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
3: Uh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Um,
1: so you sold all but one of your positions in Chinese stocks earlier this year. So why have you changed your mind on this market?
3: Um. Well, over the very long run, China was a fantastic place to invest in the 2000s, made a very large amount of money uh, investing in companies as China welcomed capital from the rest of the world, um, needed capital in order to industrialise, in order to modernise their economy. Um, They were always aware that we're investing in a communist country. Uh, They were very explicit about it, and they expected companies to do uh, plenty of good for society as a whole, not just enrich billionaires. Uh, so we were always wary of political developments, regulatory developments, and of course the markets took quite a shock when the IPO of Ant Financial was cancelled last November. And then there's been a, a succession of different regulatory uh, tightening ups, really. Now, it's not just China which is worried about big internet companies and billionaires. Uh, the Democratic Party in America is sceptical is about these as well. Um, but not perhaps all that surprisingly, China just gets on and does something about it. And the downside when investors get hit by this sort of thing can be very dramatic. I mean, there's a trillion dollars of equity value been wiped out in China in the last six months. Uh, So we held a number of the big internet stocks, Alibaba and Tencent. It's just that we sold them earlier this year as we saw the signs that regulators and uh, members of the Communist Party were were going to tighten up.
1: Yeah, so do you think it's these actions are because you know, they perhaps want to have more control over companies and consumers? Or do you think that the, the, actually it's just the government trying to raise its standards by getting heavy on governance issues?
3: I think that there's certainly a, an element to some of the regulatory changes, which we might all sympathize with. Um, they're getting tough on um Kids spending too much time doing online gaming—that's <laughs> today's story. And you, you sort of look at that, and you don't exactly think, "Oh, dreadful communists! What on earth are they up to?" Yeah. You think that that's a perfectly good, good thing. I have those worries myself. Uh, but the trouble here is that it's not quite the deal that international investors expected, and it's not quite what people were told. And that's what leads international investors to pull their money out. Not least because the rest of the world has so many good recovery stories at the moment i mean the economies are picking up after last year very nicely and so i I fear that a lot of people are just going to say why bother when you're dealing with political risk you're always dealing with something very difficult to assess uh and where the downside can be very dramatic um and so i think that people are just going to say we'll leave china for another year it might be all right they might be exaggerating the regulatory changes um but what's the point there are so many other stocks to own
1: yeah, well, I've spoken to various other fund managers over the last sort of six months or so about you know the signs that Beijing were going to getting heavy, and it, nearly all of them sort of said yes, we recognise that you know there could be some risks here, but you know the worst that could happen is the company will get a fine, and then the market will say okay, the uncertainty is now being removed, so uh, you know we've got potential to buy a stock at a cheaper price, and we just move on. But do you think that we're actually at a point where? You know, buying on the dips might not actually happen this time
3: i think a number of those people who felt very very confident that they knew what was about to happen have lost an awful lot of money and i'm afraid this happens a lot I, you know i am afraid a lot of people in the in the fund management business if you question them about their portfolio they will claim a ability to predict the future particularly the political future which is excessive um we don't take that view we, we regard politics and And governance as a serious threat sometimes to uh, our savers capital and so we prefer to take a a more cautionary stance Um, the other thing is it doesn't do much good if a stock looks cheap if it's in a political headwind which is scaring people Uh, as we saw in 2008 as we saw in 2000 2002 you can get your valuations very, very wrong. And anyway, being on a low PE doesn't really matter if the regulator is against you because your whole business model might get changed. You might be on a high PE for what anyone knows. Uh, so I'm afraid I, in my experience, people are overconfident during these periods of change. And there's no question that the amount of regulatory action over the last 10 days is exceptional. I mean, it was not forecast by anyone.
1: Yeah, well, I I read a really good article from yourself in the Financial Times where you talked about emerging markets. We also mentioned about China saying, actually, look, it's you know it, it's really hard to grow by ten percent a year from a high base than a low one. So obviously, and you're sort of making the point that um, when an economy grows, wages rise, and, and the competitive advantage on labour costs begins to disappear. So, I, I mean, I know that if you if you put regulator interference to one side. You know, lots of people just looked at China and said this is a good place to invest for rapid economic growth. But actually, is it looking a lot less attractive going forward on that basis?
3: Uh, I completely agree with you, Dan. Uh, I, I feel that for quite a long time now, the attractiveness of investing in emerging markets is still described as if it's 15 years ago, and it's not. Um, so a lot of the big emerging markets basically have emerged Um and they have perfectly good domestic economists, but they're not going to provide what these funds are sometimes marketed as, as, as being about, you know, super normal growth as long as you stay the course for a long time. I don't think that there's a good argument for that at all. If you want proper emerging markets, these days you have to go to East Africa, some of the Middle East, uh, possibly places like um, possibly places like Pakistan, possibly places like Peru. And the political risk, and possibly Turkey. But The political risk there probably would put most people off, but they're the economies which have the potential to grow very fast. You know, China has done an amazing job for its people already. That is now in the past. It is a fairly mature economy.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Well, that's great. Simon, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Anytime.
1: So let's move on to the unglamorous world of banking and how one company thinks it's okay to make its staff sweat blood and tears because it's paying them so much money.
0: Yeah, so this is uh Goldman Sachs, which is obviously a household name to most. Um, and they just announced that they're paying their first year bankers even more money, which initially you think, Oh, what a great news story. So their their basic pay is going up from about sixty two thousand pounds to eighty thousand pounds. So bearing in mind this is the very entry level positioning in Goldman Sachs. And then it's gonna rise again to ninety thousand pounds in their second year. Um, and that's before you take into account bonuses but uh, to dampen this good news story is the fact that um, a lot of the first year bankers there are saying that they're basically having to work in inhumane conditions and that they're averaging 95 hours of work a week they on average sleep for five hours a night their mental health and physical health has been um, damaged by working there Um, so it's quite strange i think that goldman sachs heard all of that and then decided to throw more money at the situation rather than maybe solve some of those underlying issues
1: that is it just seems weird you know, i just can't imagine you know, working that many hours you can't truly be productive you're going to be burnt out aren't you so and i also think it's strange in this sort of perhaps a world where sort of social governance issues are taking much more um of a bigger role in the boardroom that companies would find it acceptable that they're saying yeah you know staff can work extremely long hours um and under a lot of pressure is that really what we want from businesses in this sort of modern world i i just don't think it is
0: it just feels really archaic to me it feels like how things were done in banking maybe kind of 30 years ago it doesn't really feel that in keeping with modern working practices and particularly with the way things are going after the pandemic of a bit more um, there's a lot of talk of kind of the power shifting a bit more into employees hands more flexible working um, and and this seems slightly flying in the face of that but I guess we can't overlook the, the fact that this is an astonishingly high salary for what are essentially graduates and that doesn't necessarily um, counteract any of the poor working conditions but that is I mean, eighty thousand pounds before bonuses for your first job is pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen some comments to say that um, yeah, you, know, you you have a choice. No one's forcing you to do this, but you know, and if you go down this route and you put the hard work in, essentially, you you, know, you could hit your early forties and and be set up financially for life as long as you haven't sort of blown it all on fast cars and and yachts and stuff. But it's um, you know, is it, it, is that really? worth it i don't know some people obviously very driven by money aren't they but it you know to me i think it's like you know if i was told that straight out of university uh you know i'd have an opportunity for you know work for a very well-known company or or, or even you know an industry that's um you know is is ambitious you could say in certain parts of it but then i you know to, to to be expected to be treated like this and you know terrible, you know, sort of working conditions. So just imagine that sort of the mental, physical stress that you'd be under. Um, you know, I don't know. and That's just not the way to set yourself up for working life, really, is it? So to provide
0: a counterpoint to you, Xavier Roley, who is a former Goldman Sachs, um, and then he was head of London Stock Exchange. Um, his point is that all of these bankers basically just need to stop whining. And he said <laughs> he worked, regularly worked 130 hours a week in the 80s and he was pretty happy to do so and he thinks that they should if they don't want to do the job they should just quit and there's millions of other people that would do it
1: mm, well i like
0: mean you in a room together and battle this one out
1: <laughs> yeah so uh well yes <laughs> i mean you know i think i think maybe it would be quite nice if we could if we could be wealthy and not actually have to work you know a gazillion hours a day but you know Perhaps there's a potential solution if you don't mind shoving your hand down the back of the sofa, isn't there, Laura?
0: Yeah. So some figures came out this week that show that there is 28 billion pounds in old UK banknotes and coins that haven't been cashed in. So across the UK, we collectively are sitting on 28 billion pounds of old currency, which worked out for every person in the UK, not even adult person in the UK. That works out about 420 pounds each. I wouldn't mind that.
1: No, that'd be quite nice, actually. So.
0: so this is, obviously, we've seen all of the banknotes um, be relaunched and into the new kind of more plasticky versions of them, and the £1 coin was relaunched a few years ago, um, and it's all the older versions of these that are now no longer legal tender that are still out there um, and haven't been tra- swapped in by people, which is actually, they obviously expect a certain amount of this will have, banknotes would have torn or got lost Um but this is a pretty massive amount,
1: isn't it? Yeah, because I remember I've got, I definitely have at least one £20 note in my house, and it's the old kind. And I certainly know that before the pandemic hit, um, you know, we were told you, know, you have to get rid of these old notes because, you know, you just have, if you go into a shop now, you'll be given um, perhaps in change one of those new shiny plasticky £20 notes. But um, at some point, like you say, that these, these old notes won't be able to be, um, you know, used in the shops. But I haven't seen the deadline for when you're meant to be taking them to, you know, to a bank or to a post office to get them changed. Um, do you know anything about this, Laura? Or you know, should I be rushing now? I've got like a matter of days before my money is worthless.
0: <laughs> so the good news is that if you do find these um, at the moment, the old one pound coin and the five and ten pound notes, even though they're no longer um, legal tender, you can't use them in the shops. You can um, trade them in at the Bank of England um so they will always they say they will always accept any um old banknotes and they will exchange them for you so you can post them to um threadneedle street in the city of london and they will exchange it for a new one or you can actually go there in person if you want a little family day trip out um (laughs) but they do warn that there are quite long queues so obviously lots of people have realized that they've got lots of this money hanging around and it could be a decent amount if you look in in um your kids piggy banks or in just money that you have lying around or in your safe if you've got a large safe in your house um could be a decent amount of money so it might be worth going and queuing
1: up well i'll take a look see what i've got in the house so
0: let's move on to the aerospace and defense sector which has caught the market's attention so there's been takeover bids from mega and ultra electronics um but the biggest name on the uk stock market in this industry is ba systems which most people have heard of but if you go down one level below that you'll find kemring which is a £900 million member of the
1: FTSE 250. index. Kemring is one of the biggest holdings in Odyssean Investment Trust portfolio, and I'm pleased to welcome one of its fund managers, Stuart Widdison, to the show. So, Stuart, thanks ever so much for joining us today.
4: Yep. Uh, hi, Dan. Thank you for having me on.
1: Oh, our, absolutely. Our pleasure. So, um, yeah, I, I think Kemring... Is a real fascinating company. I, th- I think perhaps our listeners might know it for supplying countermeasures for military aircraft. But there's also quite a fast-growing bit of business, which perhaps a lot of people don't realize exists. But you know, before we talk about that cybersecurity um, digital engineering arm, Roke, I-, I wondered if we could just talk about how Kemring ended up in your portfolio. Because I, if I cast my memory back, it was really successful up until a point where, I think I'm right in saying this: that military operations started to be scaled down in Afghanistan and Iraq, and, and perhaps it was sort of left with years of having to sort of restructure and sort itself out a bit. But what, you know, when did you first invest in this business, and what was the potential when you you first put some money into it? Yeah,
4: uh, as you've pointed out, Dan. I mean, it's it's had quite an interesting and and uh, boom to bust history over the years. Um, in fact, I've, I first looked at it back in 2002 when I was working private equity um, and uh, we we didn't invest in the business for a number of reasons, largely around some of the activities being more harming people than protecting people. But again, the business has changed, which I can talk about. It, it really had its halcyon days in, in um, the Gulf period when um, it made supernormal profits. And when um, during that period, it, the company used those supernormal profits to basically almost throw fuel onto the fire of growth and go and do a lot of MA and A, uh, they used debt funding for that. And it turns out, a lot of the MA they did probably wasn't integrated particularly well. And then the the Gulf War finished in 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 two thousand and eleven, and the troops started to withdraw, and the company went from be from boom to bust, and uh, the company was over-levered. And uh, it had a number of years in the in the almost the wilderness, um, and was a very difficult um, company for people to invest in. It didn't perform very very well. Now we invested in um, the company uh, just over three years ago. It was one of the first investments we made after we launched our investment trust, and we got very excited by um, by what was going on in the business and transforming. Three three key things. Firstly, uh, the company had repaired its balance sheet. Um, and uh, as a result of that, was able to invest in its manufacturing improve its operational performance. And going back to the reports at that time, they specifically talked about a margin enhancement opportunity um, where they felt they could improve operating profits by 30% just through running their manufacturing better. And we really like that. We, We, as you know, Dan, we really like companies that can help themselves. So that was one thing we liked. Um, the second thing was uh, uh, um, really around that as well as improved cash flow, uh, the company had appointed a relatively new finance director then called Andrew Lewis who'd come from Avon and we think very, very highly of Andrew and there was a significant opportunity we felt to improve working capital which was running at about 25% of revenue, Now Andrew's delivered that and generated significant free cash flow which, is, which has helped uh, uh, pay down debt. So on top of that, then we were quite excited by um, the, in recovering the countermeasures market. As I mentioned, this, that, that end market had been really in the doldrums for a number of years, but there was evidence that through the F35 program that that countermeasures business was going to start to return to growth, which, which it has done. So we got very excited by that. And the final thing was really around their, their, sensors, their sensors and cybersecurity business. You mentioned um, you mentioned Roke. It's a pretty hidden asset in the group. Not a lot of people know about it, and we think it's got very good growth prospects. But also on top of that, these so-called, so-called programs of record. Now, these are significant long-term uh, contracts that the company has been bidding for uh, for the, um, the, the end client, is the US government. And in many cases, it's one of the only people in the world that can develop these um, biological and chemical detectors. And when we invested three years ago, None of the upside from them winning any business in, in in that area was was in the share price. They've successfully won significant piece of business on three out of the four programs of record, and they've got one outstanding which should be decided at the end of this year. Um, and those have the potential to not just improve the earnings visibility of the business, but also drive pretty interesting growth over the next three to five years. So it was it was one of these situations, multifaceted, um, growth inflection coming, significant margin improvement through self help and really an asset that we felt that the market was struggling to understand because of historical legacy issues. Yeah. D-
1: do you ever get concerned about defence budgets coming under pressure? I just wondered, um, you know, Cameron's on sort of framework contracts to you know, potentially win something in the future, but um, if it perhaps that defence spending isn't quite what people expect you know, in the future, is it, could it still struggle?
4: Look, I think it's a very valid um, concern around the market. And I think if you're investing in a big prime, such as General Dynamics or b a the risk is much higher. In reality, what Kemering gets from um, the defence organisations is a drop in the ocean. The more excitingly, it's actually positioned itself to be in those areas of spend, which are poised to grow significantly, cybersecurity uh, in particular. And, and again, these these programmes of records, which... Which are really end next-generation sensing systems. Um, so uh, one is never uh, complacent, but actually, it's an absolutely the sweet spot. I think if it was doing conventional uh, weaponry or anything to do with the, you know, uh, the particular army, I think that's that's where you know there's a lot of public information on that. There's much more pressure on budgets there.
1: Yeah. So let, let's talk about Roke. The um, so part of Cameron's sort of cybersecurity operation. So, uh, so but go back to sort of 2010. It, it bought Siemens UK Defence Electronic uh, Unit, which is called Roke Manor Research. So, uh, I know a lot of what the business does is classified, but you know we we know it's active in in things like artificial intelligence and electronic warfare services to to you know customers that sort of span security defense automotive and aerospace but you know is it felt sort of fair to say that, that Roke is is the biggest growth opportunity within the business
4: I think it's um, uh, I think from well, I think it's it goes alongside that and the programs of record the programs of record are slightly different in their nature um, because the revenues will come in uh, a bit later and, and really the, the, the outstanding one they're waiting for is their Avcad which I can come and talk about later but I think from an organic perspective, the real opportunity with roke is 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 really can they can they drive you know a lot of their growth recently has been driven by we believe selling more into the u k government um I think that's right to continue um but the real opportunity is can they sell more of what roke does to uh to commercial organizations but also to the u s you know the u s is the the biggest market for this and it was quite interesting, um, um, I think, not the recent results, but the results before they talked about their first significant win in the US. And we were told at the time that Roke had been selected because the uh, the US purchasing organization um, could not find anybody in the US that could do what Roke does. So we think that's pretty exciting to win that first piece of business out there. And in reality, if they can continue that momentum, there is significant growth to go for. Um, the, one of the challenges you mentioned with Roke is it's very, you know, confidential in what it does, and for many years we think that the company has, has deliberately kept quite a low profile on what it does.
1: So I presume if if Roke was a standalone business and not just a not just a sort of subsidiary of Camerling, that um, you know people might look at it in different ways. I was, you know, cybersecurity firms trade on pretty high earnings multiples. Um, perhaps you know Kemering is. Is it got? Is it Definitely got some hidden value in there. You know, if we broke up the business, would it be worth significantly more than people think? Uh,
4: look, um, I, I, I think so. Yes, I mean, it's it's not in a bargain basement rating at the moment, but actually, if you look at the not just the potential value of Roke, but also the the growth to come through from the programs a record, we definitely think there is hidden value there. And just looking at the standalone P is, a, is not reflective of, of the potential value in there. Um, look. You're absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're an investor in NCC as well, which is one of the only really independent cybersecurity players in the UK market. Good assets in this area with good growth can go for four to five times enterprise value to sales. Uh, and on that basis, I think Rokes turnover is around 80 million. That alone is probably worth almost half the market cap of the company, despite the fact it's got 20% of the revenues. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. um, you know, pretty, pretty exciting, I think. Um, um, and you know, having looked at the space, there just aren't that many high quality independent um cybersecurity companies left. You know, most of them have been gobbled up by bigger players. I mean the, some of your listeners might remember Detica of old, um, which was a FTSE two fifty cybersecurity business that got bought by BAE for a pretty, pretty hefty price. Um, you know, it it's a it's a hidden jewel in the business, definitely
1: yeah i mean d- just in terms of um i was mentioning at the start about ultra electronics being a takeover activity uh, i note that one of roke's rivals is called p a consulting and um the u s listed jacobs put a majority stake in that business fairly recently does did you think that you know perhaps Kemering could be on the radar of um you know i don't know private equity or someone or an industry player might might sort of have their eye on what 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 is sort of growing um behind uh, no not behind closed doors but you know under, under sort of um by the general public in terms of what's happening within the business
4: uh, quite possibly the question is 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 who would would anybody want the whole group or actually um you know could could somebody make a you know an approach for part of the business i think the management team and the board of Camering would be quite reluctant to sell rope for anything other than a knockout offer so um i think it's it's more difficult um then in terms of the whole group, you know, if you look at the different dynamics, the three parts, the countermeasures is a stable market leader. Um, it's, you know, it's absolutely cleaned up the business, the health and safety has improved, they've put a lot of investment in it. It, it. It's a, it is still a risky business because it makes things that go bang, but ultimately there aren't probably as many buyers for that asset as there are for, for Roke. And the program's record is largely still sort of four or five contracts, which, um, you know, are, are quite exciting. But again, you wouldn't have that as a standalone business. So, I, I think Roke and the programs the records probably go together. Um, you know, could the could the company demerge those assets possibly? Um, but ultimately, um, you know, could somebody swoop in and buy the whole thing? Well, again, possibly. I mean, I've I've known Ultra Electronics for many years. I've invested in it before. Um, I think the bid is a knockout, or the potential bid is a knockout, 25 times earnings for a business that's making good margins. Um, I think you're only going to do that if you think you can do something with a business. And one of the big issues that we think a lot of these high-tech UK-based defense companies is that if they were owned by U.S. players, maybe they would generate more revenue from the U.S. Uh, client base. Again, Roke, classic example. It's got one piece of business in the States, very small part of its group if it was owned by a player in the US, maybe more business would be easier for it to win. And that's possibly what somebody might see in it.
1: Yeah. And just sort of finally, you mentioned about it's still waiting for one of these big programs of record contracts. It, mm. if, it, if it doesn't get that, is that really bad news or um, is, it, is this a significant one to be keeping an eye out for?
4: Well, I think it's it's the biggest one. It's This is so-called AVCAD, which is the aerosol vapour, chemical detection um uh contract so it's um they've been doing some i believe some some initial work in it already um probably in q1 next year the the end us client will decide really three three options which is um it gives the piece of work to either Cameron or the other participant which we believe is smith's detection it shares the work between the two of them and from what we understand their solutions are slightly different and have slightly different uses. Um, alternatively the end client says actually no, we're not going to do this anymore. We we we're going to redivert funding elsewhere. Um the end client we understand is super secretive and neither Smiths nor Cemering actually know or have any idea of where the client's going to end up on this. Um mm-hmm. does it kill the investment thesis? No, because it's not in it's not in forecasts. You know, this is the company, you know, Andrew Lewis, the CFO, you know, we've followed him for many years. He's extremely cautious about guiding. And, um, you know, the company is extremely good at setting expectations. So, look, it removes some optionality, but it doesn't by any means kill the investment case at all.
1: Well, brilliant. Stuart, thank you ever so much for talking about Cameron. It's great to have you back on the show.
4: Thanks, Dan.
0: So right at the start of the podcast, we promised you some movie memorabilia. And Jen is bursting to talk about all things Star Trek because she is a massive sci-fi fan. So Jen, what have you found? Well, don't judge
2: me too harshly, but I only recently watched the original Ghostbusters film. And if you happen to have saved that on uh, BHS of the... 1985 classic, and was so restrained that it's still sealed, you could make nearly £2,000. So for today's Money Madness, we're mainly heading to sci-fi land. (laughs) Topping the list of merch that was once widely available is a comic book, which is where the sci-fi genre really took flight. Batman's first comic from the 1940s could now be worth a whopping £157,680. But I have a feeling that if you own that edition, you probably already know about it. Um, My favourite item on the survey is a 1968 Star Trek lunchbox complete with matching thermos flask. First of all, it looks dead cool, but even better, it could fetch you a tidy grand. But you don't have to head too far back to find value in memorabilia. Film posters from the 21st century are still worth taking care of. Tarantino's Kill Bill and James Cameron's Avatar fetch around £450 for posters. Or if apparel is more your thing, some Mission Impossible 2 Oakley sunglasses could rack up £700. And a Monsters Inc. promo top which reads, we scare because we care, is valued at £650. Toys are also a massive section of film memorabilia. A Star Trek playset, Jurassic Park fig- action figures, and Toy Story voice recorder are all estimated at one thousand pounds or over. So let's hope you kept any movie merch in good condition, as your bank account will really thank you for it.
1: Well, Jen, what have you got then in your house? What's your what's your top most valuable toy?
2: I've got two pretty good ones. So I've got um, one of those original um, negatives from uh, one of the Star, um, Star Wars films, um, which has got Darth Vader in. And um, recently, I got a um, original James Bond Moonraker film poster, which is taking pride of place. We've got it gorgeously framed, so it's hanging
1: there in all its glory. Very nice. Then, Laura, what have you got in your attic?
0: I am too much of a hater of clutter to collect anything, so I have probably thrown out things of value over the years. But I just um, marry would everything.
2: Oh no, Dan, you must have
0: something. Dan, I feel like you've got lofts and sheds full of this stuff. Um,
1: yeah, I've got I've got quite a bit. I've got a, a quite a good selection of um, peanuts memorabilia. If you like your Charlie Brown. Nice. Um, and then I've got some yeah i actually got some old Star Wars figures. I know that you know I could easily chuck them on eBay and get probably a bit more from what I paid for them in the first place, but um sometimes they're just you know I, I quite like to know that they're just there even though they're stuffed in a box somewhere but um you know we like a bit of hoarding. <laughs> <laughs> So
0: that's everything from us this week. Don't miss next week's podcast as AJ Bell's chief executive, Andy Bell, is going to be on the show. And we've also got a great competition, which you're all going to love. So catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. And the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.